Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. There's a line in the Talmud that goes like this. And it will be, should be familiar to you because we actually include this in our prayers every Shabbos. I'm Rabbi Elazar, I'm Rabbi Chanina, Rabbi Elazar, says in the name of Rabbi Hanina, Tamidei Chachamim Marbim Shalom Ba'olam. Torah scholars increase peace in the world. I heard many years ago Rabbi Norman Lamb, he said that he knew of a fellow who was doing a doctoral dissertation on humor in the Talmud. And after studying all the different sources, he felt that that line was the biggest joke in the entire Talmud. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, you know, Torah scholars sometimes do not increase peace. Sometimes they do the opposite. So, you know, it's a little bit of an ironic statement. But what Rabbi Lamb said is that the statement is not meant to be descriptive. It is not true that all Torah scholars increase peace. It is meant to be proscriptive. In other words, in order to be a Torah scholar, one must be one who increases peace. And if a person is not actively increasing peace, then regardless of how much wisdom they do or do not have, they are not a Torah scholar. It is proscriptive, not descriptive. Now that phrase is similar to another phrase that we find in rabbinic literature. That is, a person, it's a, uh, uh, a line in Pirkei Avos, a person should be rodev shalom. Should, a person should pursue peace, should run after peace. That word is very interesting, rodev. Because that word occurs in another context of a pursuer, a rodef, is a pursuer who is about to attack another person and there is a law to intervene in saving a potential victim. But the, the word rodef has a connotation of such enthusiasm or such effort to reach one's goal that one is even willing to use violence. That's the context that the word occurs in. And now we have Rodev Shalom. Rodev Shalom therefore means that a person has to pursue peace with the urgency and with the understanding that the opposite of Shalom, Machlokes, dissension, is a danger. Just like a rodef is a danger to a potential victim. It is a sakana. It is a danger. And therefore, there is a need to be rodef shalom just as one needs to save someone from potential physical danger. That's the concept of what machlokes in the negative, uh, arguing, dissension, in the negative, and then the opposite of Shalom. 
Now, it would seem that it's very simple to say that these two terms clearly apply to our Torah portion. This parsha is the parsha of Korach. And Korach is a cousin to Moshe and Aharon. And Korach stages a rebellion. He starts a machlokas. He wants to rebel against Moshe. He wants to rebel against God. He wants to rebel against the who is in charge. He wants to be in charge. And Moshe arranges this showdown. Moshe says, Hashem decided who the leader should be, Moshe, who the Kohen Gadol, Aharon, the high priest. I didn't decide, Moshe says, Hashem decided. And there is this showdown. And God causes a miracle to happen that the earth opens up and swallows Korach and his followers, 253 followers. So this Parsha is about Machlokes and the dangers of Machlokes. And hopefully there are some lessons here about how to avoid or heal Machlokes in dissension. That's going to be the goal for this evening. So it would be very simple to understand that a person should pursue peace like Moshe and don't pursue Machlokes the way that Korach did. Be like Moshe. Don't be like Korach. And in fact, the Torah tells us that explicitly. If you turn, please, to page 828. <clears throat> page 828, near the top, 1, 2, 3, 4, the fourth line. Pasuk number hey number five. I'm just reading a, a phrase near the end of that Pasuk. So in the Hebrew side, one, two, three, four, five, six lines from the top in the Hebrew, and one, two, three, four, five lines from the top in the English. Don't be like Korach. Don't be like Korach. There is a prohibition in the Torah. Don't be like Korach, but rather you should be like Moshe. Don't cause arguments, but pursue peace. However, there is a passage in the Medrash, a rabbinic comment, that is absolutely frightening if we try to apply it in our own lives. And we need to apply it in our own lives. And the, the comment is based on the following verse. So if you turn back, please, to page 822. When Korach began his rebellion, first Moshe addressed Korach, what you're doing is wrong, don't do it, you're going the wrong way. Korach didn't listen. Then Moshe went to speak to the followers. And among the followers were two men 
One named Dasan and the other Aviram. Dasan and Aviram. Two men. And if you look, please, Pasuk number 12, Yud Beis, number 12, near the bottom of the page. Vayishlach Moshe likro ledasan laviram b'nei aliyav. Moshe called to be able to meet Dasan and Aviram. He went, as the commentators explain, he went to their tent. He asked to speak to them. Vayomru, and they said to him, Lo nale. We don't want to talk to you. They refused to speak to him. Now, I want you to listen please to the words of this medrash. It's not written down there. I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to have to figure out exactly what it means. Says the medrash, Mikan, from this verse of what Moshe did to go to the home of Dasar and Aviram to attempt to speak to them, even though he was turned away, Mikan, from here we learn, She'ein machzikin b'machlokes, that we are not allowed to engage in machlokes, in dissension, in controversy. She'hayem Moshe mechazer achareyem lashlimam b'divrei shalom. Because Moshe went to them in order to appease them with words of peace and to try to get them to turn back from their attempt at dissension. So, I want to take a few minutes now to unpack the words of this Midrash to understand the significance of what the Midrash is teaching us. Let me start like this. I would say, and I think that most of us would say, at first blush, that we fulfill the verse don't be like Korach. How do we fulfill that verse? Well, don't start a machlokas. Right? Don't start an argument. Don't start a controversy. Or, don't rebel. Don't be rebellious. Don't be like Korach. Don't rebel. Or, don't be wrong about interpreting God's will. Don't argue with what God says. God says Moshe's in charge. Don't argue. God says Aaron is the high priest. Don't argue. Don't argue with God. Or give the benefit of the doubt. Okay, right? Now, here's the thing though. Don't be wrong about an issue is more true about Moshe than anyone else. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz points out this verse I read to you. Lo Don't be like Korach. He explains it's not only a prohibition, don't do it. It's also a prediction there will never be an argument that is so one-sided that Moshe is completely right and Korach and his followers are completely wrong. I will never be 
so right in any argument that I have, I will never be as right as Moshe was in his argument. And don't take this the wrong way. Neither will you. You will never ever be as right in any subject, in any side that you take. You'll never be as right as Moshe. And I'll, I'll show you. Because Moshe had God himself take his side, open up the earth, and publicly display to everybody that Moshe was right and Korach and his followers were wrong. Now, if you've ever had that happen to anyone you disagreed with, please let me know. I'd be very interested to hear. I have not had that happen to me in my life. So there will never be a situation where anyone will be as right in an argument as Moshe was in that argument. However, this is pointed out by Rabbi Yisrael Reisman. What this medrash is teaching us is that that's not enough. Because if that's all that Moshe did, that he was right and Korach was wrong, Moshe would still have been guilty of engaging in Machlokas. Because the prohibition of engaging in Machlokas is not alleviated simply because you're on the correct side. You are still engaging in Machlokas, in dissension and controversy. What Moshe did to alleviate that prohibition is Moshe humbled himself to go to Dasan and Aviram to make peace. It was beneath him. They should have come to him. It was humiliating. They refused to speak to him. But what the Medrash says is, again, let me quote the words, Mikan, from this fact that Moshe went to Dasan Aviram, from this fact we learn, this is the source of how to avoid the prohibition. It doesn't make you such a great tzaddik, such a great righteous person. It just means that you're not violating the prohibition. Because not violating the prohibition means that you have to pursue peace. Like a rodef with an intensity and an urgency, even if it's beneath you, even if it's humiliating, even if you're right and they're wrong, unless you have done what Moshe did with Dasar and Aviram, you or I am guilty of engaging in Machlokas. One has to pursue peace with the same intensity and determination that one pursues preventing a loss of life. Because the lack of peace is a type of loss of life. A number of years ago, I visited a member of a DAF this person has since passed away. And he was an elderly gentleman. He was upset with the shul. 
And he told me the following story. He said to me, he wanted to purchase seats for the high holidays. He sent in a check of what he could afford. And the office sent the check back and said, sorry, it's not enough. So, first of all, I have to say, number one, we never ever do that. Anyone can come to any service regardless of paying. Anyone who comes by holidays is welcome to come. If a person offers to pay something, it doesn't matter how much it is. We never ever do that. We do need a few people to, to help keep the lights on. That's true. But we never tell someone that that's not enough. Never. And the second thing is, people tell me lots of stories in many different contexts. And I have trained myself to suspend judgment until I hear the other side or the... Because lots of times you hear a story and it's someone's perception. I'm not, not arguing... I'm not arguing with their perception, but it doesn't always accord with the outer reality. But I'm sitting with this man. And he's telling me this story. And he is animated and he is excited and he is angry. And he says the following words to me. He says, and I am an as I am telling you this story, he says to me, Michael Whitman, sitting in the chair next to him, as I'm telling you this story, he says to me, I am seeing stars in front of my eyes. And he is literally, not figuratively, but literally shaking with anger. Blood pressure's up. It happened 45 years before he told me this story. 45 years. He remained a member until he passed away. But he would never set foot in this building. He would not accept any apology, any explanation. It was one of the saddest things in my entire life to see a person consumed by the machlokas, by the controversy in which he was. Please turn to page 820, the very beginning of the portion. Page 820, the top of the page. 821 in the English. This is not going to come out so well in the English translation, which is not literal. So I'm going to read it from the Hebrew. Vayikach Korach. And Korach took. Korach, the son, Ben Yitzar, the son of Yitzar, the son of Kahas, the son of Levi. Vedasan Vaviram and Dasan and Aviram. Right? We heard about them already. Bnei Aliyav. And On Ben Peles, Bnei Ruvain. On. We'll talk about him another time. So these individuals. Pasuk number two, Bez, Vayakumalivne Moshe, 
they stood before Moshe and they said, you should not be the leaders. All the commentators ask the following following question. There appears to be a word that doesn't belong. And it's the first word, Vayikach. And he took. Normally, Vayikach, to take something, means, in a literal sense, to pick something up in your hand and take it with you. If if I'm going from here to there, I take the Chumash with me. Vayikach. Or maybe it could refer to taking a person. But the verse doesn't say it. The verse is saying, Korach and Dasan and Aviram and On went to stand before Moshe. So the question is, Vayikach Korach, what is it that Korach took? There doesn't appear to be any object of the verb to take. All the commentators ask this question. There are many different answers. Rashi gives the following answer. Vayikach, what did he take? Says Rashi, as Atzmo, he took himself. What does that mean? What it means is, he was overtaken by Machlokas, by dissension. It became his identity. It filled him with rage. He was not able to separate himself from that, he became the controversy that he began. Couldn't you also say by he's taking the others with him or he's taking part? There there are lots of different answers. Yes. As I said, all the commentators ask this, there are many different answers. Mm -hmm. But this is the answer that Rashi gives. I'm Mm -hmm. just quoting Rashi. Right. And it ruined him. It ruined his life. It ended his life. But before it ended, it ruined his life. Just imagine if he would have put the same effort and energy into loving and forgiving instead of hating and arguing. And that's one of the lessons that this portion has for us. Amar Rabbalazar, Amar Rabbichanina, Tamidei Chachamim Marbim Shalom Ba'olam. Torah scholars increase peace. Be one of them. Because it's the only way to live. If you hold on to anger, if you hold on to controversy, if you hold on to dissension, it will kill you. And it won't only kill you, it will kill everyone around you. Give in make the overture to the other person or the other party, even if you're right. Humble yourself, even if the other person started. And even allow yourself to be humiliated in order to achieve peace. It's not weakness. It is what is required. And that's the lesson this Parsha teaches us. It works for your soul. We're not, the story is not over. I want to share a second piece with you. So, 
this this portion contains a scene that certainly speaking personally, maybe others agree with this as a child, it was certainly the most frightening story that I ever heard. Um, the source of not a few nightmares in my childhood. And I assume that I'm not alone in that. If you turn, please, to page 826. So, page 826, Korach stages this rebellion with his followers. Moshe says, God is going to prove who is the correct leader. And if you turn, please, on 826, in the middle of the page, Pasuk Lama Beis 32, the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed them. Pasuk number 33, Lama Gimel, and they all fell down to the depths, and the earth covered them over, and they were destroyed from the community. So the version that I heard as a child adds an element that our rabbis add to make it even more horrifying. And that version or that myth is that if you put your ear to the ground, you can hear the cries of Korach. Did anyone else hear that? No. I grew up, yes, it's in the Talmud. I, I grew up with that. That's, that's, that's nightmares. Okay, that's scary, that's scary. Certainly one of the most powerful narratives in the Torah certainly captures the imagination. It's a transfixing drama. And what a great outcome for Moshe. I mean, again, like I said before, you know, to have God himself do an open, overt miracle in front of the entire Jewish people that shows Moshe is right and Karach is wrong. Wow, that's... I mean that that's a that's a serious repudiation of Karach and a serious support for Moshe. You could not imagine. Yes. Anything associated with them? Anything associated with them? I I I think one possibility is I think the Torah is teaching us that a person who's involved in machlokas it destroys everything around them. It destroys their family. It destroys everything they have. It just destroys everything. It's like a nothing. Nothing. What's with this reference at the end that there's also flame that comes down? And consumes. So that's the other some of the other followers. The other followers. Yeah. They were they were trying to take over the the role of priests. Well, well, well hold on to that. Okay. We'll we'll come, we'll come back to that. So 
you certainly could not have had a more clear and powerful and decisive conclusion. I mean, anybody that had any doubt, it's, it could not be more clear. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out something that is just astounding. It didn't work. Because the next day, please turn to the next page, which is the next day, page 828. The next day, page 828, Pusik number Vav, number 6. Vayilonu kol adas b'nei Yisrael memachras. The next morning, the morning after this clear overt miracle happened, the entire congregation of Israel started to complain, to protest. Al Moshe, the Al Aaron, Lamar, Atem Hamisem Esamashem. To blame Moshe and Aaron that you're killing people. I mean, hold on. How is it possible to blame Moshe and Aaron when it's a miracle? I mean, it's a, it could not have been a more clear overt miracle. And they all saw it. Everybody saw the same thing. But not only was the miracle not conclusive, it made things worse. Because the next day was worse than the day before. Because the originally, how many people rebelled against Moshe? 253, right? Karach and Dasan and Aviram and On and 250 followers. Okay? Korach and 253. Mm-hmm. The next day, Vayilonu Kal Adas Israel, everyone was upset. Managed to upset the entire Jewish people. It's a very important lesson. You can be right. And you can still be wrong. The Duke of Wellington once said, victory in war is only marginally better than defeat because even the victors must bury their dead. Even being right, you can still be wrong. So, Hashem suggests the following to Moshe and Tara. He says to Moshe and Aaron, this is the next section, he says, take 12 poles. Poles of wood. And on each pole, write the name of one of the 12 tribes. And on one pole, the pole for Levi, right? Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, etc. All 12. On the pole of Levi, also write the name Aharon. Remember that Levi is the tribe so Moshe and Aharon and Korach were all cousins. They were all descendants and part of the tribe of Levi. Kohen was a specific demarcation for Aaron and his descendants to have a specific role within the Jewish people, right? Kohen is not a tribe. Levi is a tribe. All Kohanim are part of the tribe of Levi. We refer to three separate groups, Kohen, Levi, Israel. But that's because we only have those three groups. But at the time that there are 12 tribes, there's Levi. 
Levi has a subdivision of Kohen, which are the offspring of Aaron, but they're still part of the tribe of Levi. So on the pole for Levi, they also wrote the name Aaron. And they put all the poles, all 12 poles, in the Mishkan in the sanctuary. And then the next day, this is now the third day, the next day, the pole with the name of Levi and the name of Aaron had sprouted blossoms to indicate that Levi was indeed the tribe that was chosen by God to be the leader of the Jewish people and Aaron was indeed selected by God to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, not selected by Moshe. It was not nepotism. It was by God. And that was affirmed by this second miracle that his pole flowered with blossoms. And that finally brought closure to this episode. So here's the lesson. We learn from this something that is so profound. And this is true on a national level. It is true on a communal level. It is true in a family. It is true on an individual level in any area of life. The use of force never ends conflict. Never, ever, ever. It has never happened. It never will. In extreme circumstances, force may be necessary, a necessary evil, and may even appear in the short term to help. But never, never in the long term does force end a controversy. Just to use an example from fiction, so I hope everybody here has watched the TV show Fauda. It's an amazing, amazing show. Two seasons are out. There's a third season that's coming in a few months. It's an amazing show. One of the themes in this show is that it's about the conflict between Jews, Israelis, and Palestinians in Israel It's often violent. And it's a marvelous show because it captures a lot of the reality of what is actually happening in Israel. And one of the themes that you see by watching this series is that every single act of violence, even when it is necessary even when it is conclusive, only creates more animosity, more revenge, more hate, and more problems on both sides. Even the most decisive intervention, even swallowing up your opponent, will only add grievance to the injury. The closest that the world has ever come to catastrophic nuclear war that we know of 
was October 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis. John Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, and they were, in the famous words of Dean Rusk, eyeball to eyeball. And they managed to pull back from the brink of nuclear destruction. They had a very special relationship, Kennedy and Khrushchev. They were adversaries. It was the Cold War. But they were adversaries who had been through something momentous that no one else had been through. After the assassination of Kennedy, Khrushchev sent a letter of condolence to Jackie Kennedy. And she sent a letter back to him. And in the letter that she sent back to him, she quoted her husband, John Kennedy, of something that he had said about Khrushchev. And she quoted this in the letter that she sent to him. And the quote was, it's not the big men that cause war. It's the little men. Because the big men and women understand that fundamentally war may at times be necessary, but it will never by itself bring peace. The only strategy that works long term is winning over your opponent and bringing your opponent to see the value of your position. The only strategy that works, quoting Rabbi Sachs, is the gentle miracle of persuasion, the quiet, gentle miracle of beautiful blossoms sprouting. And think of that image that finally brings closure to the episode and think about how the way that is resolved so clearly and closely resembles the famous verses that we say in Shul on Shabbos when we put away the Torah. The Torah is a tree of life for those who hold on to it. Its ways are ways of pleasantness. And all of its paths are peace. It's the only way that works. And that is, in fact, the ultimate lesson in healing, machlokas, and conflict. Power or force may be necessary under certain circumstances, but it will never heal the problem. I want to share one more piece with you. So if you turn, please, to page 958. is a parsha that we are going to read in a few weeks from now. And if you look at the top of the page, 
This is in the last days of the 40 years in the desert. It's the end of Moshe's life. The Jewish people have arrived at the eastern bank of the Jordan River and they are about to cross over into the land of Israel. Moshe begged God and said, God, my master, verse number 25, allow me to cross over and see the good land on the other side, the western bank of the Jordan. Allow me to cross over. God had decreed that Moshe would not enter the land of Israel. That decree had happened earlier. At the end of Moshe's life, God begs one more time, let me go into Israel. It was the single personal goal that dominated Moshe's life as as an individual. And he doesn't get it. Pasuk number 26. God rejected my entreaty and didn't listen to me. And we know from a little bit later in the Torah, Moshe dies on the eastern bank of the Jordan, is buried there, and he does not achieve entering the land of Israel. What's interesting is that God does not just say no. God adds one more phrase. One more time. Pasuk number 26. God rejected my entreaty, did not listen to me. And God said to me, Ravlach, it should be enough for you. Do not speak to me about this any, anymore. Ravloch, it's enough for you. You've done enough. It's enough. The careful listener will make the connection to the phrase in our Torah portion. And this connection is pointed out in the Talmud. If you turn, please, to back our portion, 8.22. So remember, Korach had questioned Moshe's authority. All of them, Korach and Moshe and Aaron, were all from the tribe of Levi. Aaron was chosen to be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Korach had several complaints. As if you go through the text, when you listen to the text on Shabbos, you'll see there were a number of complaints that Korach had. But one of them was, why was Aaron chosen to be the Kohen Gadol? I should be chosen to be the Kohen Gadol. That's one of the complaints. And Moshe answers on page 822, Pusik number 7, near the top of the page, He te- uh, page 822, Pusik number Zion, number 7. 
Moshe is describing what this showdown is going to be like. Each person will take a pan with incense and we'll see which one God will accept. And then at the end of the verse, one, two, three, four, five, the fifth line in Hebrew, one, two, three, four, the fourth line in English, Rav Lachem B'nai Levi. It's enough for you that you're a Levi. Why do you also need to be a Kohen? It should be enough for you that you're a Levi. Being a Levi is special. It should be enough for you. The rabbis in the Talmud point out that in the later passage, God is giving a subtle rebuke to Moshe. He could have just said, the answer is no. But he adds these words. Ravloch, it should be enough for you. In order to imply to Moshe that what Moshe said to Korach right here, Ravloch Embene Levi, Moshe did not speak properly. Moshe was wrong in his choice of words. Now, there's no question that Moshe was right. That Korach was wrong. That's not open for question. God himself proves it. But Moshe was also wrong in the words he chose to speak to Korach. Because what he should have said was, I didn't select Aaron to be the Kohen Gadol. God selected Aaron to be the Kohen Gadol. You should listen to God. But instead, Moshe said, Rav Lochem, be satisfied with what you have. Be satisfied with how close God has allowed you to come to Him. You don't have to come any closer. And God thought that that was not the right way to speak, even to a person like Korach. And therefore, God found a way to gently rebuke Moshe later, years later. Be satisfied, Moshe, with how close you've come. You came all this way from Egypt. You got right to the edge. Are you satisfied to be close? Is it enough just to be close? Do you like how it feels? No, but God is saying to him, do you like how it feels when someone tells you that you've come close enough, you can't come any closer? There is a custom in my family. It was started by my grandfather. And I have continued it. My grandfather started that at the bar mitzvah of every grandchild, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, of every grandchild, he would speak. He was a, a wonderful speaker. <clears throat> but he would write a letter individually to that grandchild. And then his speech would be delivering the contents of the letter. And he would give the letter to each grandchild to keep. It made a profound impact, I think, on all of us. And I did that for all of our children. What I just shared with you, this short piece, was what my grandfather wrote to me at my bar mitzvah. My bar mitzvah portion was the Eschanan. 
And this Dvar Torah was the subject of his letter. And I want to read to you just a little bit of this letter. It was a letter addressed to me. Throughout life, Michael, you will find a defender of mediocrity rationalizing his own failures and trying to recruit others to join his company. In one way or another, you will be told, Ravlach, let it suffice you. Be content with how things are. The words will sound reasonable. You're doing well enough. So what if you're not the best in the group? That's not for you. You don't have to be first or the best. And particularly, will your religious commitments be questioned? It's good enough to be observant. But you're far ahead of the average layman. And after all, you're not a rabbi. (laughs) These words came back a few years later when I actually became a rabbi. But but when I was 13, the idea that I would become a rabbi was just not on anybody's radar. (laughs) Never believe it, Michael. Your only limits are your own dreams. No one not even you has the right to ask you to compromise with your principles, to moderate your goals, or to accept or expect less than the best. The single challenge is to try and to continue to try. Then you will never be a failure, even if you do not succeed. There is a great difference between being a failure and in having failed once or more. Such failures are stepping stones to ultimate success. Mm 